we come together in the Dhamma sharing the practice of meditation within the safety and strength of community. When we feel safety in spiritual community, what does that mean? We will always have a reference point, a compass, and a standard that is higher than any worldly concerns. Because it's not founded on our likes and dislikes. It's higher than our preferences, our personalities, or our worldly wishes. Spiritual community may not always feel easeful and safe. Here on retreat together we sit, we keep quiet, so the suffering is primarily with regard to our own minds. Each one of us can experience the totality of our silence. But what happens when we leave these special conditions? We have to live in close relationships and we face a terrain of intensive proximity and complexity. We have the opportunity to train, to develop beautiful qualities that heal our differences so that we can live together in peace and tolerance. We can learn forgiveness, kindness, compassion. We can rely on wisdom, generosity, restraint, and renunciation. Can we forbear through our willingness to give up our preferences, as well as deferring to a higher standard? We can, but we have to ground ourselves in virtue. And most significantly, resort to our refuge in the Noble Triple Gems. When I was a young nun, I lived and trained in a large spiritual community. And it was important to resolve community differences. That was a big test. It was amazing to live in a monastery, in a powerful container. This kind of practice may seem outdated. And the value of these highly circumscribed ways of living is often misunderstood. Some might consider the robe, for example, as nothing more than a costume, bound up with prescribed formulae that contribute nothing to our meditation practice. But actually, the supporting features of this form have a tremendous studying influence on the mind. 
our attention is constantly tuned to the refrain of understanding suffering, of purifying the heart, and walking a path of freeing ourselves from suffering. This monastic form can also both reveal and refine our frailties, our flawed attitudes and interpretations or projections that compromise the best in us. When we are besieged by fixed views or attachments to preferences, the mind can habitually fall into its default positions and unenlightened reactions. Every morning at the sounding of the first bell, we would rise, wash, and get ready for our morning puja, group meditation and chanting. In winter especially, the hall we sat in was poorly heated, and you would feel very cold. But there we were in the dark of a winter's morning, kneeling in front of the shrine, chanting those words of praise to the noble triple jewels. I would try to arrive early, and as we knelt with cupped hands, held upward in the sign of peace, I could feel myself shivering. It was very challenging to kneel on just a worn mat of no comfort on that cold vinyl floor. One day I tried wearing gloves, at least to keep my hands warm. This was not to be done while chanting in front of the shrine. And then I discovered that some of the nuns kept a hot water bottle hidden inside their robes. Who was ready to surrender to the form? We did. We fell in line, obeisant and restrained, living by the traditional ancient training discipline including these extra austerities. Here we were, in the extremes of a northern climate, emulating a style of practice that originated in the tropics. And being the first generation in the line of its transmission, little variance was tolerated. You had to conform. Naturally, this demanded a lot of letting go. So we all made peace with things as they were, to one extent or another, as best as we could. At times, tempers flared, complaints were lodged, There were also epiphanies of practice, 
in the wrappings of holiness, of gratitude, and of obedience. No, you couldn't have morning chanting when you felt like it. Just like you couldn't have food when you wanted it. We had to move and respond to the situation as a group with our assigned schedules and a choreographed day that we followed perpetually. And that was our commitment. So even if we were in a bad mood or we had a poor night's sleep, we would have to show up. Likewise, if you had a stomach ache, the meal was at 10.30 a.m., and that was the time to eat. Even if you ate just a little bit, because attendance was mandatory. Not to mention, there would be no dinner. For some of us, the internal brewings of discontent could be temporarily camouflaged through competitiveness, indifference, or even extremes of practice. Austerities that I thought were spiritually graceless. I remember one member of the group who seemed to relish dominating our discussions or decision-making. There was always a good opportunity to exercise patience. But even if the one person you found too difficult to bear left the community, someone else would likely fill their shoes. As long as we believe that the suffering came from outside our own mind. There was unprovoked aggression and attention-seeking. These were not uncommon. It so happened that one day when we were having our meal, there was a terrible outburst, and people were all frazzled and upset. The laywoman who had prepared the food approached the monks to begin serving them. Next, the pots of food were ceremoniously offered to the senior nun at the head of our line. Eventually, the offerings reached us, and the recalcitrant nun, with whom tensions had arisen, offered a tray of food to me. So we all ate. During my interaction with this nun, I was aware of harboring ill will and disrespect towards her, and I noticed how caught up I was. So I consciously contained my negativity. And when I reflected that this nun was older in the robe and had been practicing longer than me, I felt compassion for her. The ill will faded and I was able to sit next to her and eat my meal. At that moment, I saw the power of our monastic form. I remember feeling a wave 
of gratitude. I could see how really it burns up defilement. It's a true vanquishing of unwholesomeness. And it offers us an enormous opportunity to let go. Even just to remember what we have to do in the fire of a conflict. That is letting go. Letting go is actually letting ego go. This was a blessing for me. The core teachings of the Buddha offer us a ready escape from the hells of hatred and hostility. Wearing the robe that simulates what the Buddha himself wore, we can't be calling each other names and making faces because we're upset. Though the heart is perturbed, we reach deeply into our core to connect to the pool of Dhamma within us as a measure of calming the mind. This fiber of peace is more than an intention. It is an energy that vibrates to a new chord and it sets in motion the wheel of truth within us. From it, we have a breadth of choice that can stir us to forgive, to be kind, to be compassionate, and eventually, even in the face of cruel or vitriolic treatment, we can be in the vicinity of peace. This is how the Dhamma grows in us, matures in us. When we come face to face with a grueling test and we find our way through, instead of habitual strategies of protesting, resisting, aggressing or overpowering, we move towards truce to let go the prison of ego. We resort to respect. And in spiritual community, we're choiceless about so many aspects of life, including who we live with, what we eat, what we wear, how we spend our time, where we live. It's impossible to control the different temperaments of those we live with. And each of us has to work with our own minds and restrain our habits as best as we can. There is an astonishing power in facing each other every day being together in situations where you have to eat and share your life with someone you may not respect or like, 
or feel comfortable with. But we are united in our spiritual aspiration. And by the power of this commitment, we are forced to return to the very basics of the Dhamma teaching. Why are we here? What is the flavor of our conduct and our mind states right now while we're eating this food that has been offered to us with so much love, kindness, and generosity? The stark reality of our sacrifice is mighty. It means making sacred. It gives us pause to reflect on the state of our mind every day. Whatever we receive, whatever life gives, whatever we give back. So when lay devotees put offerings into my bowl, can I receive the food with gratitude, respect, and kindness, regardless of my mind state? I have to learn to go beyond my likes and dislikes and the personal hurdles that I have to overcome. So that's how we find it within ourselves to sit together quietly, to live together peacefully. In mutual consideration, not just of our spiritual companions, but of the whole world. In mutual consideration, we need to set everything else aside. This pivotal teaching helps us to practice forgiveness, maybe only for one moment, but compare this to the force of dependent origination. One condition begets another. One action conditions and influences what follows it. Isn't forgiveness the whole of our life? It's not worth living if we can't forgive. Our meditation practices of weeks, of months, and more would be lost, bereft of meaning, if I couldn't come back to the meal with love and gratitude and eating together in that spirit. We're all pursuing a spiritual goal. If we can't live it in that way, then our practice is superficial. People keep asking why we have to keep these rituals. You could have a cynical attitude that these things have no value, or you could think about the benefit of coming together with our loved ones and friends to share in the blessings of our life.
of that. We do the same old things in a new way. We bring something special to those moments. And we mark them on the calendar. That's what we do in monastic life. Only our life is much more soaked in the essence of the Dhamma because of our commitment. So we practice with this in mind every day, every breakfast, every puja, every time we get up in the morning or sit in front of the shrine and bow. It's a celebration of the Dhamma. Wherever we are, we stay true to the path. That's paramount. If we bring present moment awareness more and more to the forefront of everything we do, then our uncompromising commitment takes root. It's the same when we sit down to eat. If we're not mindful of what we're doing, we have to bring our mind to the table. Everything we do, we do it with mindfulness and attention and care. This will bring us back to the Dhamma. And everything becomes an upaya, a skillful means to remember the present moment to purify the mind and to liberate ourselves from suffering. So we let go our opinions and our thoughts about the way we are or about the way someone else is. It's a bit like cleaning out the bag of a vacuum cleaner. You keep vacuuming and you think the dirt is being removed, but it isn't because the bag in the canister is full. So it is with the mind. For it to work, to be purified, it has to be emptied out. We disarm our unskillful ways of acting and speaking and even thinking. And we use that like an internal disarmament. That way, we don't have to live in fear. Because if we live in fear, we don't thrive. We only get sick. So, we sit together in the silence. You don't even know who's here. You don't have to know. It's enough that Whoever you are, you've left the world behind. You come to sit in the silence to listen to the truth, which is greater than all of us. So we can forgive ourselves, we forgive each other. We all have that ego, and we need to make the E go. Make it go. Making it go is coming back to these skillful ways, these upayas. 
whatever we are blaming the other person for, stop. If we're angry at somebody for the way they treat us or speak to us, we may have every reason to feel that way, but then how perfect are we? Shouldn't we look at the blemish in our own minds before we point fingers at anyone else? Foremost, we have to beware the dangerous poison of anger. We have to look at the state of our own minds and bring it to peace, to wholeness, to goodness. And we can approach each other with patience, understanding, tolerance, forgiveness, compassion. It's important for us to understand our moral commitment to practice kindness at all times. And it's possible. If we can remember to reflect on the qualities of our teacher, the Buddha himself, and his unbridled compassion. So then, honoring the Buddha's teaching is our protection. When the mind is all over the place, it is strengthening for us to follow this basic form of doing things respectfully, even if we are impatient or upset. We just keep to the path. You can compare the effect of these practices to a snowblower that takes the snow and blows it out of the way. That helps clear a walkable path where there had been none. We only need the sign of a path, a swath of passage. We don't need to clear the whole field when you can take a direct, one-pointed route straight through the obstacles to penetrate the blizzard in the mind. So it is with our practice. When a storm is brewing, use the most skillful tool of all. No matter what kind of a situation we're confronted with, contemplation and stillness of mind always show us how the ego drives the boat and how we can reclaim our ground. We restrain and redirect ourselves back on the path so that we don't drive another nail into the coffin of our awakening. So as long as our default is to follow habitual patterns of exploding and fragmenting ourselves into tiny pieces, how can we possibly wake up? So we must mind the mind, and question the committee of voices within us that invariably are pointing a finger at someone else. Then we are festering with negative opinions towards others, blaming, angry, judging, 
reacting, abusing. This Dhamma has the power to heal us deeply. Whatever is coming up in life, always go for refuge to that which you can really trust. This will rescue us from old unhealthy habits and behaviors. And it happens gradually, incrementally. It's not a sudden arrival. Oh, now I'm going to be fine forever. It's more like a trek through valleys and mountain passes and sometimes difficult, exhausting, even painful. At other times, joyful, exhilaration. Whatever the conditions, we have to be patient and trust the journey itself. Truly profound learning comes when we least expect it. We just keep going and letting go. Right now, the real emergency is to give ourselves fully to the practice. If we've fallen off the path, we dust ourselves off and we restore ourselves to the path. And we don't abandon it. Our health is good enough. The conditions are good enough. The way is there in front of us. So, may you go well. And may the Dhamma always protect you.